I'm giddy. I mean, seeing so many people that I haven't seen consistently in so long here in worship, it's special. It is, isn't this a special morning? I mean, with, with that combined with, with uh, David's amazing testimony and vulnerability, I mean, it, I am, I'm literally giddy. This is, this is a wonderful day. Well, let's make it even better by turning to God's word. Let's open up to chapter 12 of the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21. <clears throat> For those of you who are note takers, on the back there are going to be two points, not three. Sorry. So maybe a little bit of a non sequitur here, but uh, I... The Confessions of a Home Brewer. I was a home brewer in the 90s. I, I got into it when it, with a friend of mine, and uh, I, I really just fell in love with the science of it, really. And, uh, and I, I got, if you know me at all, you know that I, I kind of don't go into things halfway. I go full bore into things. And so Carrie saw me buying, you know, multiple carboys to ferment the stuff in. And the, I built my own mash ton and, and I crushed my own grain. And, and you know, I, I'd brew these beers and, and, and you know, just be it was such a creative outlet for me. And, uh, you know, in, in the basement, there were just stacks and stacks of beer. You can't possibly drink or give away all the beer that I was producing. I could have been my own microbrewery, I imagine. Anyway, I loved the science of it, how you could just tweak the amounts of grain, the kinds of grain, the different kinds of hops, and, and the yeast strains that you had. And they're, they're generally two broad yeast strains that you can brew with. And one, one is is a lager yeast, and the other is an ale yeast, and they, and they produce very, very different tasting beers. Very different. You know, the ale, uh, the, the lagers is more of a clean, crisp uh, taste, and the, and the ale was more fruity and had more, more uh, distinctives in it. Two yeasts, two very different kinds of beer. And people tend to gravitate towards one or the other. They prefer the taste of one over the other. I've titled this sermon, A Taste for the Right Kind of Yeast. Because in our passage today, Matthew is kind of tuning our taste buds, if you will. He's tuning our taste buds. So over the next five chapters... Because there's going to be two competing Gospels going on in the next five chapters. Two competing types of life, ways of living. Two competing Gospels, if you will. The yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Christ. And Matthew wants us right up front... To get a taste 
for the right kind of gospel. And so he quotes from Isaiah. Look with me at verse 15 in chapter 12. It says there, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them. He healed them all and ordered them to not make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Father God, your word is rich, and you've given it to us today. Help us eat well. Help me, Lord. Help me to communicate what you have laid down for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. So, picking up in the context, after the conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, Jesus withdraws. That's why he's withdrawing. He withdraws because the Pharisees have come to the conclusion that they must kill Jesus. If you look at verse 14 and just right above, it says right there, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, how to kill him. Now, we're not told how Jesus knew this. Maybe, maybe it was part of, of his divine divinity that he could look into people's hearts and minds, possibly like he did with the woman at the well. Or perhaps a sympathetic uh, Pharisee like Nicodemus came up and, and told him what was going on. But whatever the reason, he withdraws from the cities, that, that evangelical triangle that we talked about last, last uh, week, the week before last. And he withdraws from the Pharisees for a time. Not from the people. You can see here that the people kind of go with him, right? And he heals them. But he withdraws from, from public ministry for, for a second, from the cities and, and from the Pharisees in specific. Because he knows that they're out to kill him, starting right here in Matthew's gospel. And, and he's on a divine timetable. He's on a different timetable than they are. Galatians 4.4 tells us that in the fullness of time he came and in the fullness of time he's going to leave. But the conflict with the Pharisees is not going to stop and it's only going to intensify over the next five chapters. Culminating in chapter 16 where you have the Pharisees demanding a sign from him. If you're the Christ, show us a sign from heaven, they're going to say. And Jesus, as you know, is going to refuse to do that. Only a wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign. And then he's going to do a teaching saying, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Be careful. Be careful of that gospel that they are preaching to you. Because there's no gospel at all. So that's the trajectory of the next five chapters. So right here at the beginning of this section, Matthew again wants to just tune our taste buds. He wants to, us to look at Jesus for who he really is. 
And so he quotes from Isaiah 42, the first four verses. This is, of course, one of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. You have those in chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50. And, of course, the one we all know is is Isaiah 53. And each one of those servant songs in Isaiah, each one of those sections in Isaiah, highlights a different aspect of Jesus' ministry. I mean, 53, we, we know almost by heart, you know, because it highlights the, the atonement that, that the Messiah that we now know as Jesus is going to go through, right? Crushed for our iniquities. But here in Isaiah 42, there are two highlights that Matthew wants to hone in on. Two distinctives of Jesus' ministry. And they're set in contrast to the Pharisees. And the first distinctive he wants us to realize is the Pharisees are people pleasers, but Jesus is a God pleaser. The Pharisees are people pleasers. Jesus is a God pleaser. He's setting up this this dichotomy of, of people pleasing versus God pleasing. If you look at verse 19 with me, you see there Isaiah says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. See, the Old Testament prophets used to get their word from God and then go into the cities and start proclaiming on the street corner, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Oh, not, not so with the Messiah. He's not going to come that, that boldly, so to speak. Nor will the Messiah be ostentatious like the Pharisees. He will not draw attention to himself. Attention will be given to him, but he's not going to draw attention to himself the way the Pharisees do. He won't come in in the kind of flowing robes that they do. Isaiah 53 tells us that he will have no form or majesty that we should look upon him. In other words, if, if Jesus was in a crowd, your eye naturally wouldn't go to him. It's not the outward that Jesus comes with. It's the inward. It's not the exterior that's impressive. It's the interior. It's, it's kind of like, he's not a Saul. He's more of a David, right? Whereas the Pharisees were all about the exterior, weren't they? That's how scripture describes them. They always wanted to be seen, always wanted to be heard, always wanted to be noticed. They always wanted to sit at the at the seat of prestige, the head of the table, if you will. They wanted to grow their their tassels long, the, the, the ringlets of hair long, to show how dedicated they were. They would wear these big boxes called phylacteries on their head or on their wrist, in which they kept little little pieces of scripture. And the bigger the phylactery, the more impressive you were as a Pharisee. Oh, look at how big that phylactery is. They were people pleasers. They wanted to be seen and regarded as holy. They were always looking for the applause of men. I think that's who Jesus had in mind when he said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Brothers and sisters, it's not 
wrong to pray in public wherever you are. But if you're praying in order for other people to be impressed by you, God sees the heart. The Pharisees, it was more important to be seen as godly than to actually be godly. And, and doesn't that touch a nerve sometimes in us? Aren't we a little like that sometimes? Maybe more times than we want to admit that we want to be seen as godly. It's more important for us to be seen as godly than to actually be godly. That's such a temptation. Article in the Wall Street Journal asks this question, why work out when you can just buy the clothes and look like you did? The article explores a growing uh, trend in what's called athleisure, a new word for me, maybe not for you. It's workout clothes of people buying these clothes without actually working out. The article noted that the athletic apparel industry has grown, has doubled to, to a $100 billion industry in recent years. $100 billion in workout clothes. Apparently, we like to look like we work out, it says. We just don't like to work out. The article concludes by saying, for many, the athletic part of athleisure remains aspirational. We can fall into this in our faith, too, can't we? We want to be seen as kind. So we smile a lot. We want to be seen as empathetic and understanding. So we listen empathetically. We want to be seen as knowledgeable. So we buy a lot of books that we never read and we put them on our bookshelves. We want to be seen as holy and righteous. So we modify our behavior on the outside without it becoming a change from the inside. We put on the apparel of Christianity. We say we'll pray for somebody. Oh, I'll pray for you. And we never do. We say, I'm willing to help and I'll come over and help you. But we never follow through. We put on the spiritual clothes. We never work out. And what this, this shows at the core, at the core, is that we're people pleasers, not God pleasers. We're seeking the applause of men, not the applause of God. And what Isaiah and here in Matthew want us to notice about Jesus is at his core, he's a God pleaser. That's who Jesus is. Look at verse 18 with me. It says there, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Jesus' whole life, whole life orbited around pleasing God. John, in John 8, Jesus says, He who sent me is with me. 
He has not left me alone, for I always do the things pleasing to him. A little earlier in John, in John 4, he he says this to a crowd, My food, listen to that, my food is to do the will of of the Father, to accomplish his work. Think of how he's using that metaphor, food. Food is a pleasurable thing. I mean, you foodies out there, even more so. Uh, Jacob made some some, uh, buffalo wings, one of my favorite things. He made buffalo wings for us this week. And it it was just so pleasurable to, to eat those. I love those. When Marty makes one of her cheesecakes and brings them over, I... And my, my family will attest to this. I'll take, a, I'll take a piece and I'll just take little slivers, little peeny slivers. I, probably a piece takes 30 forks full because I just want to savor that. It is so pleasurable. Think of what food you love to eat. It brought Jesus that type of pleasure to please God. His heart was tuned to pleasing his heavenly father. He sought the father's applause, not the applause of men. In his book, What God Thinks When We Fail, Stephen C. Roy tells a fictional story of a young violin virtuoso who was deathly afraid of crowds. Finally, he was convinced to, to play a concert at one of London's largest theaters. The young violinist came on stage, and there was just a lone stool on stage, and he sat on that lone stool, and he put the violin to his chin and played for an hour and a half straight. No music in front of him, no orchestra behind him. For an hour and a half, he played beautiful violin music. After 10 minutes or so, the the critics put down their pads and pens and just listened. At the conclusion of the performance, the crowd rose to his feet and just began applauding and clapping for minutes and minutes and minutes on end. But the young virtuoso did something odd. He didn't acknowledge the applause at all. Instead, He could be seen scanning the audience, desperately looking for something. After the concert, the critics met the violinist backstage and they asked him why he he never acknowledged the applause of the crowd. The young violinist took a deep breath and answered, Tonight, before I came on stage, I received word that my master teacher was going to be in the audience. So after I finished playing, I was so eager to find my teacher that I couldn't even hear the applause. I just had to know what he thought of my playing. That is all that mattered to me. Finally, I found him high in the balcony. He was standing and applauding with a big smile on his face. And I said to myself, if the master is pleased with what I've done, everything else is okay. That's how Jesus reacted throughout his whole ministry. Have you ever read the Gospels and just thought, how 
can Jesus continue to do what he's doing without seemingly being affected by all the negativity? It's because he was scanning always for his heavenly father's applause. That's what gives him such confidence when facing the Pharisees. He's only seeking to please God. He's able to look past the crowd. And that's what we need to develop, brothers and sisters. We need to develop that type of focus on pleasing our Heavenly Father. If we are actually going to make it through culture, we have to develop a taste for that kind of yeast. We have to develop a a focus on what the Father thinks of what we're doing and not what others think. That's the type of yeast we have to develop a taste for. There's another type of yeast that we have to develop a taste for, and that is gentleness. Gentleness. The Pharisees are harsh. Jesus is gentle. Pharisees are harsh. There's the contrast that we're going to see in these next five chapters. The Pharisees are harsh. Jesus is gentle. Look at with me at verse 20. There God's word says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This is one of the most tender, sweetest, comforting scriptures, I think. Now, reeds were were found along all the rivers and lakes and marshes in Israel. We call them cattails. You know cattails? That's what he is talking about here. They were used to to make pens and, and flutes and measuring rods. And they're extremely fragile. The stock was extremely fragile. If it got, if it got dented or, or hit or bruised, it would be useless. As is the candle imagery that he uses here. This, this candle, I mean, we, we lose power sometimes up here. Sometimes. And, and you turn to your candles. If you don't have a generator, I get it. We have candles. And we, we burn these candles and and they get down and they, they start getting into the nub and it, the, the wax pool pools and, and the, the wick is barely sticking up out of the wax and it's just barely hanging on. They can barely hang on for a long time. Have you noticed that? So little. You know, if you walk by it fast enough, it'll actually put it out. But it's just this little flame. That's the image that Jesus is conjuring up in our minds. And Matthew uses this imagery to help us understand not only who we are, but how Jesus treats us. Because it's in stark contrast to how the Pharisees treat. The Pharisees put heavy loads on people. They looked at the, to the law for righteousness and salvation. And so doing, because they looked at the, to the law for their salvation, they crushed people with it. You've seen that, just seen that on the Sabbath two weeks ago. We'll see that, seen it previously with fasting. Why do your disciples not fast like we do? 
with who Jesus is allowed to eat and, and whom he's not allowed to eat with. They're always looking to the law, always saying, if you do this, you're good. If you don't do this, you're lost. They did this so much that near Jesus' end of his earthly ministry, he, Jesus scathingly gave seven woes to the Pharisees. Do you remember that? In Matthew 23, he condemns them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces by looking to the law for gospel. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single convert. And when they become a convert, you make them twice as much a child of hell than yourselves by putting law in front of gospel. He said to them, you tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but you are not willing to lift a finger to move them. He was in no uncertain terms telling them they were crushing the bruised reeds and snuffing out the smoldering candles because they were living by the law. They were living by the law. And thus crushing people by it. Because that's what the law does, brothers and sisters. The law crushes. The law was created to crush. That's why God created the law. Because sometimes we actually need to be crushed. That's one of the purposes of the law. Paul says in in Romans 7, He says, not because it leads to life. He says that the law is good in Romans 7. Not because it leads to life, salvation, but but because it points out our death. It points out our demise. That's why the law is good. See, the law has no power to save. said it many times here behind this pulpit. the, the, The law is like a trail map. You get the trail map and you stand at the bottom of the mountain and it shows you how to get to the top of the mountain. And if you follow that, you'll make it to the top. That's great. That's what the law is. It tells you how to get to the top of the mountain, so to speak. But the map has no power to get you there. The map is good. The map is right. But it has no power to get you there. And if you try to use it as if it has that power like the Pharisees, you crush, you bruise, you snuff out. The crushing power of the law is indeed good, not because it saves, because it reveals our need. The law reveals our need. That's what Paul says in his argument in in Romans 3 through 7. We would not have known what sin was without the law. It reveals our pollution, our brokenness, our need. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing with natures like ours that think we're not polluted, that we are good, that we can do it. What it does, brothers and sisters, is it reveals that we are all bruised reeds 
It reveals that we are all flames on the edge of extinction. And that is good. Because that's where you need to get to in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? You have to get to that point where you think, my flame is about to go out. I can't do it. That's where the gospel springs to life. Puritan Richard Sibbs, and I would just want to commend this book to you, The Bruised Reed, Richard Sibbs. He writes this, Bruising is required before conversion so that the spirit may make his way into the into the heart by leveling all proud and high thoughts that we may understand ourselves to be what indeed we are by nature. We love to wander from ourselves and be like strangers at home till God bruises us by one cross or another and then we begin to think like the prodigal, I need to go home. It's a very hard thing to bring a dull and evasive heart to cry with feeling for mercy. Our hearts, like criminals, never cry for the mercy of the judge until they are beaten from all evasions. And that's what the law does. It bruises us rightly so that we cry like the prodigal, I got to go home. It brings us to the point where we actually cry out for mercy. That's the role of the law in the gospel. Paul wrote it like this in Galatians 3.24. The law was our guardian. Some translations say teacher. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law leads us to realize we cannot complete its requirements. That's what the law does. You study the law and you begin to, it begins to dawn on you, I can't do this. I can't possibly do this consistently for a day, let alone a lifetime. But the law leads you to the one who did. And that's Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who pleased his master perfectly. Every day, who ignored the applause and the catcalls of culture, who kept his eyes focused on his heavenly Father. That's what Jesus Christ did to fulfill the law. The law leads us to realize our need for forgiveness before a holy and just God. That's another purpose of the law in the gospel that we need our bruises not overlooked, but healed. That Jesus provided that by going to the cross, by paying our sin debt, by being bruised so that we don't have to, by being snuffed out so that we are not, by being forgiven and unforgiven and cast away by God so that we can be forgiven and brought close. The law teaches us that we cannot overcome the curse of death. That's what the law tells us. 
that we are each and every one of us a wick that is a whiff from going out. But not Christ. He was snuffed out on the cross, but he rose physically three days later. And if you place your trust in him, if you are here today and and you hear this, you understand what Christ did for you, if you place your trust in him today, the promise is that you are forgiven, your bruises are not overlooked, but healed, and you'll be with him forever. You'll go from life to life. You'll never be snuffed out. Richard Sibbs again says, Are you a bruised reed? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and go to Christ. That's the call of the gospel to all bruised reeds and smoking wicks. Our last hymn we're going to sing today is called Grace Greater Than All Your Sin. How true, brothers and sisters, right? Amen? We already sang about it once. I'm so thrilled that we're going to sing about it twice. In one of those stanzas, we're going to sing, Sin and despair like a sea waves cold threaten the soul with finite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. R.C. Sproul said, We are not in the kingdom because we are perfect. We are in the kingdom because Jesus is pleased to save bruised reeds, of which we are all. Amen? Amen. But there's this final lesson here for those of us who, who claim to be Christians. Richard Sibbs again writes, After conversion, we need bruising so that we might remember we're reeds, not oaks. Isn't that great? Even reeds need bruising because the remaining pride in our nature and to show us that we live by mercy alone. How true. We have a tendency to begin to think after conversion that we are oaks, aren't we? I got it. Victory in Christ only. No. We need bruising, brothers and sisters. Bruising is good. Because as we're bruised, as the law exposes that the rabbit hole of our sin is deeper than we thought, as we realize that we fall short of the glory of God it should make us return again and again to Christ in confession and repentance shouldn't it and that's where we're reminded that if we confess our sin Jesus is faithful and he's just and he'll forgive us our sin isn't that sweet it is there that we're reminded that Jesus never, ever, ever crushes us. He may bruise us, but he never crushes us. It is there that we're reminded of the best news of all, that Jesus never gives up on us. 
I hope you did watch the Bible Project today because that was, that was the big takeaway. We, many times, are faithless. But as Second Timothy says, he will remain faithful. Brothers and sisters, he's got you. You don't have him. He has you. And he'll never, ever let you go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It is such a balm for us today. Help us, Lord, to see the bruising that you do as a good thing. Help us, Lord, to turn to you again and again, for that's what you're doing in all this. Help us, Lord, to realize what a good, gentle God you are. In Jesus' name, amen.